0: Each episode, I'll be talking to some of the world's most inspiring people, exploring the powerful impact that dreaming has had on their lives. We'll be diving deep into the power of dreaming with real insights and ideas that you can use immediately to build a dream life of your own, whatever that means for you. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode. This week, I am chatting to an amazing human that we've already had on our podcast, Hugh van Kallenberg, who is the founder of and author of The Resilience Project. If you haven't listened to the previous episode with him, you have to do that. But this one is as amazing. If ever there was a time for us to be resilient, it was when a deadly virus emerged and engulfed the planet. As death rates soared and lockdowns radically altered our lives, the Resilience Project founder, van Cullenberg was one of the people Australia turned to for advice on how to cope. Under pressure to deliver good news during a historic crisis, it didn't take long for the Melbourne-based educator to realise he wasn't coping. Like millions of others around the world, Hugh was forced to reassess life during the pandemic as COVID-19 undermined our sense of safety, strangled our personal connections and saw levels of happiness plunge. After taking the time to address his own feelings, Hugh recognized he was being hamstrung by the same powerful issues that affect the lives of so many. Shame, expectation, ego, fear of failure. The Quest for Perfection and Control, and Our Addiction to Social Media. So I got him back to talk about his new book, and he is so brilliant, and I truly think you're going to love it. So let's get right into it. Hi, Hugh, and welcome back. I am so grateful to have you back on my podcast.
1: I'm very happy to be back. I I loved our first chat. I remember we were sitting in my very small studio together. Gosh, when was that? Was that like two years ago now, maybe?
0: Yeah, I think so.
1: What a a two years it's been. Oh,
0: I know. It was kind of, it was during COVID, so you didn't actually expect me to come to the studio. So um, I just turned up there because it was... Ease of restrictions right. for a week. Yeah. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, we say it was during COVID, but there were no cases at that time, I don't think, in Melbourne. But now the world's open up again and there's hundreds of thousands of cases. But anyway,
0: <laughs> we might leave the COVID cases alone yes. today. Yeah,
1: let's do that. Let's do that. Good idea.
0: <laughs> well, I'm so grateful. I so love your new book let go and I feel it's very timely for many of us that's why I've been hustling you to come back on the podcast because I feel like it's a very needed book for so many and also we are going to read it in my personal growth slash book club in March so I'm really excited to have you on so thank you for that but maybe you want to start with why you wrote this book
1: after the first book, Penguin Random House kept saying, is there another book in you? And I, and I said, to be honest, there's not really. I told everyone my stories and I've, I've given you everything that I've sort of got. And then when COVID happened, everyone was calling me for advice on how you cope in a crisis. And for the first couple of months, I, I happily obliged and felt like I was giving good advice. But I was telling my psychologist about this again yesterday. we were reflecting on it. But I remember I started getting really angry at my kids and my wife and i never get angry at anyone ever even when i should i, I don't get angry i remember there's one night my daughter elsie who at the time was eight months old and she just wasn't sleeping and i was getting really angry at her like i was just saying just sleep instead of walking off and she was trying to stand up and i was putting her back down and walking off and and got really angry and the next day i remember reflecting on it and just thinking geez this is not who i want to be especially to the most important people in my life. And I just, I was confused by why I was getting so angry. And three weeks after that, I was doing a radio interview with Dave Hughes on his drive show. And yeah, it was 7.30 in the morning, did the interview. And Dave Hughes finished by saying, oh, my wife and kids are in Melbourne. I'm actually up in Sydney. So I probably need to ask you, are you okay? How are you going? And I said on live radio, when I hadn't even admitted it to myself yet, I said, I'm totally and utterly broken. And as the words came out of my mouth, I sort of tried to catch them and put them back in. I was like, whoa, whoa, my God, what have I just said? And I was sort of imagining like if I was in a studio, I'd be like going, hit the dump button. I didn't say that. I didn't say that because I was thinking, this is really disastrous for my, for my brand, what I've just said. Like this is really bad. But I said it and they said, oh, we're really sorry to hear. It must be tough in Melbourne, blah, blah, blah. And we sort of finished the interview and I went inside and I told Penny, my wife, and as I said it, I got quite teary. I hadn't even said to myself, I'm not coping well at the moment because everything I loved had stopped. Like the And like everyone, like everyone, I don't need to explain the perils of COVID, but everything that I truly drew pleasure from had just completely come to a grinding halt. And I said, I'm not coping, I'm not good. And I cannot tell you how much better I felt for so many reasons. But the main one was I kind of let go of this expectation. I'd set myself that I have to be okay all the time and I have to make everyone happy all the time. And it's my job to make sure everyone's happy and I'd sort of forgotten about myself and I know it's a bit of a cliche that the person who thinks it's their job to go and run around looking after other people doesn't look after themselves. I know it's a cliche but I have been doing this for 11 years now and the way I wrote about in the book the paragraphs I'm most fond of was I just said a giant cresting wave was building up all around me and then I finished that paragraph by saying and then out of nowhere without warning the wave broke on top of me and that's kind of what it felt like. And then the journey I went on to sort out what on earth was going on in my life and how I needed to uh, heal sounds again, like it's really cliched, but I don't know what other word to use. I just felt like I needed to heal and, and get better. And the main reason was I didn't want to get angry at my kids. Like I've never been angry before. I don't want them to think we've got an angry dad. And so I went on this 15 month journey to try and sort out some stuff in my life that was really sort of holding me back. And I remember halfway through that at my publisher called me again and said hey just checking in how you're going and is there any chance you've got another book in you and said oh, do you know what i actually think i've got something for you and that's kind of a very very long answer to your question christina
0: that's <laughs> a great one and you know i so relate to the angry side because i've also been really angry with losing the business and i feel like you know the one who you do not want to cop it is your family but i think a lot of people do over covid because there were so many things that we kind of had and loved and disappeared because of that. So yeah, I think it's more normal than we think. So in your book, you share that you took your own advice and went to see a psychologist. Can you please share how you did this? Obviously, I read your book, so I know how you did it, but it would be really good to share because I think that's a really hard one because I think we all... Could do with having a psychologist, and I actually have a friend who is coming on the podcast to share a little bit how to find one. But it would be really interesting to hear how you did it because that's a difficult one, especially when you perhaps don't want to ask around or you don't know anyone who have the same. Because not everyone shares obviously openly and write a book about it. So it would be great if you can share that.
1: I will share it, but I just want to give all the listeners a bit of a heads up. I haven't really got the answer yet because I cheated in the end. So the second I thought of it, I was I, I, one of my. Very closest friends is a psychologist and she's brilliant. I knew I couldn't see her because we're friends, but I, I knew that she would know someone really good. So I was going to ask her and I thought, no, do you know what? So often people say to me, oh, I just, I'm coming to you. I don't know where to go. What, where do I get help? Do you know any psychologists? And a lot of people say it's not that easy. And I've always thought, we just going to be patient. But I thought I'd go through the process myself just to experience what everyone else experiences rather than going to someone who I'd getting a really good referral. So I literally was sitting in my car and I saw it was a really nice logo. I love the branding of this psychologist. I was gonna say shop, but it's not a shop, it's a psychologist practice. I thought, I love that branding. And so I literally just pulled over the car, went in here and made an appointment. And a week later I was there so excited, I was like, I've done it. This is it wasn't that hard. It was so easy to go and just find a good psychologist. And this psychologist, this lady descended the stairs holding an f machine and she literally, before she said hi to me, she didn't say her name. She didn't introduce herself, she didn't say hi Hugh, she just put a F-post machine in front of me and said, do you mind paying for this before the session? I just hate walking down the stairs after sessions. I went, oh my gosh. And so I should have said, do you know what? No, and just got up and walked out. But I went, oh, maybe, maybe there's a test of something. I don't know. So I paid and went in. And within 10 minutes, I was sitting there thinking, fine, oh, no, i just like, This is a ridiculous waste of time. It was just terrible. I, there was no connection. I found it. It's probably a method. And I'm sure some people were just so cold and so hard and there was no warmth there at all so that didn't work and then the next one i just saw another place it was a long way away from home but it just seemed really good i went there and the, the site we sat down he said to me he had a really nice coffee machine in his room and he said uh, i'm gonna make myself a coffee i'm just checking you are okay with me drinking coffee while we talk and i said yeah no it's okay. of course go for it and he didn't offer me one now i didn't want one and i didn't know i'd had a couple of coffees in the day and i didn't need another one but i thought how odd that you would not know it's socially appropriate to offer me a coffee at this point. I think even my two-year-old daughter, if I give her anything, she asks for two and she goes and gives her a piece of bread, she'll go and give the second one to her brother. Like My two-year-old daughter has more social skills than this guy. So I thought, nah, I'm not going to share my life story with this guy. The third person was, I chose the venue literally closest to our home. It's a five-minute walk, if that. And I wasn't learning. I did two sessions, didn't learn a thing. So I gave up. So this is the frustrating part for your listeners is I gave up and I called my friend who's just incredible. And I said to her, do you know anyone? And she said, I've got someone who's perfect for you. And within five minutes of this person, I just knew that she was the one.
0: <laughs> but I think that's, that's really good advice because I think in whatever we do in life, asking who, who has done this before or who can I ask and who can I learn from. So, so even if you don't know a psychologist, someone might know someone who knows someone and then you eventually get there. So I don't think that's cheating. I feel like that you did your homework and you know how hard it is. So now you can get people to speed it up a bit by just really asking around.
1: It's funny, isn't it? I feel like the, the message, that I, if I can give any message, it's kind of what you just said, I guess, but you need to sort of be patient as well. Like just if you are not sure it's right for you after a couple of sessions, I think you just keep looking. And the beauty of having a mental health care plan that you can go to your doctor and they'll write out a, a script for, and you get 20 sessions for free. So you can afford to be a little bit picky. It used to be 10. And I think then if you'd spend three or four sessions, then you'd only get five or six for free. But now you can really go to three or four and and then choose your favourite and then, and then you got 15, 16 sessions for free.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yeah. Uh, you go to the doctor and, and you explain why you want to see a psychologist and I've never heard of a doctor who says you don't qualify for a mental health plan.
0: Amazing. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. That's I didn't know that. So that's really great to know. In one of the sessions with your psychologist, Anita, she said there comes a time in life when you realize you don't need to carry the events of your past around with you anymore. It's time for you to let go. I love that. And I feel like everyone who reads that would feel so much better by just reading it. But how did you work out what to let go of?
1: Yeah, it was a huge moment for me. I was sitting in this room, actually, because we're doing it over Zoom. I pushed my chair back and I sort of put my head in my hands. I wasn't crying, but I just, I was so struck by that. So much so that I felt this tension come out of my shoulders. It was like, yeah, I am hanging on to way too much. (laughs) Yeah. And every single session we had, I kind of felt like a part of it should say, you need to let go of that. You need to let that go. And that's where the title came from, obviously. It really resonated with me. Like, I kind of needed to tell you. So it's only looking back, I realized the things I needed to let go of because I kept this journal. And I'd write those really personal notes about what I was learning. And then I'd literally study them that night. When I was in bed, I'd study them and m- write more notes. And I'd think of stories to support what I'd learned. And you know, I, I think one of the big ones, I mean, the first time, the first thing I said to her is, I don't have a mental illness, so I probably won't come and see that much. It's probably going to be once every two months or something just to check in. And she said, yeah, that's fine. I, I ended up seeing her once a week for the whole of 2020. And when she said to me, I'm going on leave at the end of the year, I said, what do you mean? She said, I'm going on holiday. I said, but we can still do this over Zoom, can't we? And she said, no, I'm going on holiday. And I went, whoa, 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 hang on. So we can't talk. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was quite panicked. I was like, oh my gosh, what do you mean we can't talk? I was just so obsessed with, with these conversations we were having. So one of the first things I said to her was, I've always felt it was my job to be entertaining, to make sure everyone's having a great time. Whatever room we're in, I really need it to be really special. And she said, why is that? And it took us a long time to work it out. But in a nutshell, when my sister got really sick, I realised that mum and dad were no longer happy, and I took it on myself as the eldest to make mum and dad really happy again. And I just taught myself at it. That was like nineteen twenty, and I learned that by telling stories, by facilitating, you know, weird, quirky activities or fun stuff with family or friends, you just could have a great time. And I would get to the dinner table, and before fights started about my sister's food because she was anorexic, I would jump in, and I would just. Start telling stories or, or running some kind of activity or facility. Even my friend, like my family would be doing these crazy games at dinner or whatever, just to make sure we had fun. Anyway, in the last couple of years, I've realized I can't really do that anymore. I used to be able to do it at the drop of a hat. Like if it was at work with people, or if it was a bunch of friends or people just met, I could, I could do that. And I realized I couldn't do it anymore. And I was thinking, oh my God, I was really worried about it. But she got me to work out where that came from, where that expectation came from. And it was to make mum and dad feel happy. And she just said to me, Do, do your mum and dad expect you to? cheer them up all the time and make them always feel happy every time you see them? And I said, no. And she said, it's a ridiculous expectation. I said, it is. And I've hung on to it for 20 years without ever questioning it. And then I realized I do it with everyone. Like I, I always have this, I want to make it really memorable for people when we hang out and make it really special. And I'd go to ridiculous lengths, really embarrassing lengths, as you've probably read in the book, to try and make people laugh and try and make them happy. A lot of it was reflecting on things that had happened to me throughout my life and some of them I didn't realize were that big a deal at the time, but I realized they definitely changed who I was and all the time it wasn't for the better. So it was about owning that story and then making a decision. i got to let that go. I can't hang on to that anymore. I'm not a 20-year-old who's insecure and trying to work out the world. I'm a dad who's still insecure, but I'm a dad who's got a career and a wife who he loves dearly and I need to let those things go and stop them impacting the person i am now and i say you gotta let go of these things you can't just say i'll let go of it and then it's gone like i felt it yesterday we we did an episode of our podcast with my brother josh and ryan shelton who i did the podcast with a comedian and we had the most amazing interview with this lady and we were on such a high from it. and we went out for lunch afterwards, the three of us sitting there and we were just buzzing from this chat you know and as the food came out, I realised we kind of stopped talking and the buzz sort of died down. And I got really anxious, like, "No, we got to keep having the best time. Got to keep this wonderful conversation. Why, why is everyone stopped?" And I felt it, and I was like, "The reason people stop talking is because their food's got here. Just fucking relax, you. Like, it's okay. People can not talk for a bit." So I still have to remind myself, but when I do remind myself, it's in that moment I'm able to let it go, which is really nice. Mm. I
0: actually would love to talk through. A little bit of each of the headings in your book. Let's start with shame. And I love how you explain it. Uh, The distinction between shame and guilt can be expressed like this Guilt is feeling bad about what you did, shame is feeling bad about who you are. I would love you to talk a little bit about that.
1: Uh, Shame just destroys us. It's one of the biggest issues as human beings that we create for ourselves. When my sister was 17, she went to hospital. And that that was her worst year when she was 17, 1999 it was. And at that same time, I had a girlfriend for the first time in my life. I was in love for the first time in my life. And the options were hang out at my girlfriend's house, or the option was to be at home where it was miserable. Mum and dad were fighting with Georgia all the time, constantly in tears. I chose to go to my girlfriend's house all the time. And for the last 20 years, I have felt like I'm such a bad person that I did that. And so much so that when people compliment me on the work I do, or you know, I get some lovely feedback from time to time and or maybe I'll do a talk, right, and someone will come up to me and say, oh, so amazing, it's incredible what you do, so amazing, you're amazing. And inside, I have this voice going, if I only knew, (laughs) you're not amazing, you're such a bad person because, oh, well done for like doing a talk, but when your sister needed you, you just took off and went somewhere else. And so for 20 years, I told myself this, I've had this anxiety of like, you're actually a shit person. No matter what everyone says, you're no good. And I remember telling a knee to that. And she said, so it sounds like there's a lot of shame up in that story. And I said, yeah, I feel hugely ashamed. And she said, you need to separate who you are from what you did. And I didn't know what she meant. I said, what do you mean by that? And she said, you made a bad choice. You're not a bad person. And I nearly fell off my chair. (laughs) I went, oh my God. So this is like the three steps of letting go of shame that my psychologist took me through. Number one, you let go of the idea of a bad person. You separate it from who you are, what you did. The second was empathise. With that version of yourself. And I look back on a 19 year old Hugh who was devastated. what was happening at home. I had the most beautiful girlfriend. I, I was so in love. Like, you know, the first time we are in love, it is outrageous what happens to you. You lose your mind completely, you know. And I was in that stage. Like, of course I wanted to be at my girlfriend's house all the time. Like, I totally understand why 19 year old Hugh did that. And not only that, I totally forgive myself for that. Totally. So that was a big part. And the third part of letting go of shame is to share your story. And it doesn't mean, you do what I'm doing, you find someone to do a podcast with and you tell the world. But you could even start by writing it down, getting it out of your head and getting it onto paper. And then maybe if you feel good or you feel confident in what you've done, maybe you could share that, what you've written down with someone that you love and someone that you really trust who will step up for you when you share the shame. They won't say stuff like, oh, that must have been awful. They'll say something like, oh, I've been through something like that. I get that. I understand. And you're not a bad person. Like we all make mistakes. I've done this, I've done that, whatever. So they're the three steps to let go of shame. I actually called her during this whole thing that I was going through. And I just started chatting to her and I, and I talked to her about this. And she said, well, like we were like ridiculously in love. Like it would have been weird if you weren't over my house all the time. And I didn't feel comfortable going to your house because I knew what was going on. I felt awkward about it. Of course you're at my house all the time. Like just listening to her talk, I was like, yeah, why am I so down to myself for making a decision to be with this person? Like, It's ridiculous. So I think it helps us to challenge the shame we have as well.
0: Yeah, and so good to move on from it. I would love to talk about expectation just quickly again because your exercise that you have asking yourself three questions, what do my family expect of me, what do my colleagues expect from me, and what do my friends expect of me? it's really good to just get it on paper and actually see because then you can actually let go of so much of that expectation. And I'm one who have a lot of expectations. So this was a really good exercise for me.
1: Yeah, it is, isn't it? You know, The expectation I thought my parents have, my family was to be entertaining and to be the light that that cheers everyone up all the time. But my parents just expect me to turn up however I feel. Like if I'm feeling down, turn up being down. I think about what I want from my son if, He's not feeling good. I don't want him to pretend that he's okay. I want him to tell me. I want him to like open up and say, hey, dad, I'm really upset about this or that. So why I thought mom and dad wanted me to always be happy is such a toxic belief. I really struggled with it for a long time. But writing it down is very powerful, you're right.
0: Absolutely. How about control? Because I think as we are recording this episode, it's worse than ever in the world with Ukraine and a lot of people feeling down, which is completely normal. But I guess there are certain things that we can't control. And so how do we deal with all these kind of hard things in life when you know it's out of our control
1: another wonderful activity i got from Anita, my psychologist i went through a stage in early 2021 where i just couldn't sleep and i spoke to her about it and said, i'm really struggling sleeping and she said the next time you're struggling to sleep just i want you to write down all the things that you're thinking about you know you're so busy with parenting and work that all the stresses of in your life probably take a backseat throughout the day and then when you finally lie down at night and you rest your brain just goes, okay, I'm on now. And you just start processing all the stuff that's worrying you and stressing you out. And she said, just write them down, just write down the stuff. And for some people, it might be one or two things. You know, I remember it being quite an extensive list. And I'm so glad I did it last year because I wouldn't, I mean, what's going around the world right now? I would not be sleeping, right? I would not be sleeping. But she said, write down the list. And I can't remember what they were at the time, There would have been two or three issues with work, maybe uh, something with the podcast. It might have been something with actually the writing process, maybe it was stressing me out about the deadlines, which you know all too well about with your wonderful books. You know, it might have been something with the relationship. It might have been something with COVID. Let's say hypothetically we're doing it now, you'd be saying Ukraine and Russia. What you then do is with a pencil or a pen or whatever, you then do a circle around all the things that you can control and then you draw a line through the things that you cannot control. And the things that you cannot control As hard as it may seem, you need to accept the things that are out of your control and you need to let go of worrying about them. Now, I don't want anyone to think, oh, cool, I'll just stop worrying about the threat of nuclear war because Hugh says to put a line through it because I can't control it. I feel like the last few years we've ever faced that many once-in-a-lifetime crises. So the pandemic, right, was was a big one keeping me awake at night. And it took me about three months to be able to do it. But I finally accepted that I cannot control it. Apart from staying at home wearing a mask, I cannot control this. And I'm spending hours worrying about something I cannot control. I need to accept it's out of my control. And so I I accepted it. I made the decision to accept it is here. The world is totally different now. I was longing for it to go back to the way it was. I was longing for the numbers to come down. I was checking the numbers every single day. And I made the decision to accept it's the way it is because it is out of my control. And the other things that I could control, I just wrote a few notes about what I need to do to stop me stressing about it, I guess. So yeah, it's about working out what you can control, what you can't. I was very worried writing this book. In fact, I wrote a chapter on it, and the the chapter didn't actually make it to the book because I was worried that people reading it who had lost a loved one or were going through something horrific like cancer would basically think, you have no idea what it's like to be me. How dare you, as a privileged, white, middle-aged man, tell me that I need to accept the way my life is? So I, I thought, no, I can't do this. I can't write this chapter. I'm worried. But then I thought about a friend of mine. Her name's Robin, and her son, when he was 19 years old was in the city. He was in the wrong place at a wrong time. He did nothing wrong. And long story short, he was chased down an alleyway and he was coward punched. His name is James McCready Bryan. It was in the news a lot back when it happened. This is 2005, 2006 it happened. He is still in a care facility. He's unable to move really, still fed through tubes, all that kind of stuff. And so I called her and I just asked her, about this very thing of acceptance and control. And what do you think about this? And she said, the most powerful thing I had to, to do was accept that James is a new person now. When I accepted as a new person, life was still very hard for me, but it became easier. I scrapped the original chapter and went with James's story. And then, and then Robin's really powerful life lesson, which was that we need to accept the things we cannot control. Otherwise we'll be shrouded by anxiety
0: gosh, it was a hard one to read. I have to say it was really good advice for so many people who deal with so many different things. And I think what we are dealing with now with the war, it's a new challenge that I guess no one expected. So apologies for (laughs) asking you the hard question. It's been really getting me down. And like with the COVID, I felt like I coped with that quite well because I was trying to work on all the things that I have worked on myself for so many years. But one thing in terms of um, what's happening right now is to kind of really reduce the amount of media we watch because I feel like having that constant in our life really affects us. And I feel like for us to get down is probably not making the world a better place in any way if anything, if we can kind of keep ourselves fit and healthy, mentally healthy, and then uh, be able to somehow support, it might not be in terms of people in Ukraine, but it could be someone who is, you know, have relatives there or it could be so many different ways where we can actually help without being so down so letting go of the things that we can't control but then turning that energy into see if we can make ourselves better so we then in that way can help that's how I I often I don't really watch the news I'm doing that a little bit at the moment of course because I want to know what's happening but so many of those things if we can let go of that just makes us feel so much better so we can put that energy into do great things
1: I really love that, Christine. I've got nothing to add to that. That's just a a beautiful thing to say and I agree totally.
0: Thank you, thank you. (laughs) Let's talk about perfection. So there are a lot of us who are perfectionists in some way. How do we deal with that?
1: It's a funny one, isn't it? I never thought I was a perfectionist, but I realised there are elements of my life where I'd become really obsessed with being perfect. These talks that I give to to really big audiences, you know, every now and again, like everything in life, I'd do a show that was was just perfect. I'd walk off the stage thinking you know, that couldn't have been more perfect. I delivered the exact way I wanted it. And I'm so happy with that. But rather than saying that was just this wonderful outlier, I'd say that's what every single show needs to be like. And if ever I walked off the stage and hadn't been that, I'd get so down on myself. My hobby away from work and family is sprinting. So I'm a 400 meter runner. I love the training. It's so good for me. But it got to a point where it became psychologically unhealthy because If my times got slower than the week before, I'd get really down on myself because I hadn't executed a perfect session. Just with work stuff, you know, team meetings, and and we just had a big staff meeting just then with with all our team, and I used to just really want them to, you know, they had to be perfect, and I'd get really down on myself when they weren't, and I realised through a conversation I had with Ben Crow, who is Ash Barty's mindset coach, I told him about this, and he said, "But you're a human being," I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "You're imperfect." We're all imperfect. That's where the beauty lies, our imperfections. The perfection does not exist. It's it's a myth. There's no such thing as perfect. So it's impossible to be perfect. And that was really big for me. And then I remember chatting to my I was telling my psychologist about it. And she said, Okay, well, that's really good, but we need to give you some words to replace that with. Right now you're saying I want my show to be perfect. And I said, Oh, so I've got to work out how what I want my show to be like, like funny and she said, no, 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 it's bigger than that. She said, what two words would you like people to describe you as when you're no longer around? Like in, in your eulogy, if your kids are reading the eulogy, what are two words you'd love them to describe you as? And anyone can do this activity. You can do it now while you're listening. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And I very quickly, I, I didn't think about it too much. I said humble and kind, they're the two words. And she said, okay, so rather than saying it to be perfect, you would like everything you do to be humble and kind. So when you're doing one of your big shows, as long as you come across as humble and kind, that's the new benchmark. And they're two values that I think are really important. And so now when I'm doing my shows, if I stuff up for a bit or I lose my way or I do a bit of crowd interaction, it doesn't work. I don't get down on myself during the presentation. I quite literally just think to myself, just be humble and kind. And also with staff meetings, when we have those staff meetings with all our, our team, whether it's a good thing or not for me, i sort of like the face of the Resilience Project. I do feel pressure in our staff meetings to deliver some – You know, when we finished at the end of some stirring motivational, like, because I do it for my job. I feel like I've got to do that for the staff meeting. I've got to make really motivate everyone and make them feel really excited to be part of this wonderful team. But now I sit back and just go humble and kind. And do you know what? Sometimes humble and kind is just listening. I actually didn't contribute a word just then. I didn't say a word for an hour and 10 minutes in our staff meeting. I didn't need to talk. Everyone was saying such great stuff. Humility to me is just listening and so was kindness. It's just listening. I don't need to be heard. And so that's been really big for me as well.
0: So good to have those words. And I think everyone can do that.
1: I haven't yet worked out how to run in a humble and kind way. I don't know what that really looks like, to be honest, but I still bet myself up about running. I'm still working on that. But anyway, that's something that's a different issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, no, but it's funny because I'm not a sprinter and I mentally struggle with running. I could walk you know, forever, but running has never been my favourite thing. But what I have with my running is if I just show up and I just do what I said I would do, that's, to me, good enough. So I let go of perfection with running, so maybe you should too. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I did a race the other day and it just felt great. I felt really fast and I thought, oh, that could be a PE. And you can check your times on your phone straight away because I upload the times onto this thing called the Results Hub. And I thought, no, 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 no. I'm not going to check this for two hours. I'm just going to enjoy the fact that I felt fast And I'll check my time later on. And if it's really fast, then that's great. But if it's not, I don't want to ruin this feeling I've got right now. And it was a great two hours. And I checked my time and it wasn't that fast and I got really down. But I didn't (laughs) get down straight away, you know, which I thought was really good.
0: It's all about progress, not perfection, right? (laughs) Let's talk about fear of failure. That's one thing that I really struggle with because when I started my business, when I was in my early 20s. All I was worried about was to lose the business. Like that's because I had no idea and it was like it took off and it became global. And I always had that fear of actually losing it. And I did lose it and I'm still here. And then fear kills more dreams than failure does. But even if you do, you just learn. So like now I'm restarting and I'm, I've started a new business and it's I just... Absolutely love it. And I'm so excited and I'm just so grateful. So, fear of failure, I would love you to talk through how you dealt with that.
1: The fear of failure is an interesting one because there's so many areas of my life I haven't feared failure at all. And I think one of the big issues, and I actually didn't write about this in the book, but I've thought about it a lot since and I wish I did, is that I think we have such a negative connotation on the word failure. You know, failure is such a bad thing. You know, even I think there was a line that I wrote in the book, then we changed it because jay-z the rapper he writes there's no wins and losses there's wins and lessons which i really liked about you don't lose you just learn a lot but then i thought no no but then let's just say it's a loss and let's a failure but let's not paint it in such a negative way it's some of the catastrophic failures i've had in the resilience project that have ensured that we've been so much better well that will never happen again i'm going to make some changes in other areas of my life to make sure that doesn't happen again so failure is such a it feels shit. Like it feels awful. And that's why we, there's a negative connotation towards it. But when you sit with it for a while and you analyze it, a couple of weeks later, it doesn't make you feel shit anymore. It just makes you go, well, I'll, I'll be better. I'm going to be better because of this. And I think deep down, I, my dream career was always to be a stand-up comedian, but I, I never thought, well, I'm not quite funny enough and it's too hard. That's too scary. I did a podcast interview with Will Anderson on his podcast, Philosophy, And the final question he asked was, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? And without question, I do very quickly. I just without even thinking about it, I said I would do a show at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, and I said it to Will Anderson. I went, "Oh my God, what did I say to Will Anderson for? That's a ridiculous thing to admit to, like the king of comedy in Australia." And he said, "Oh, you have to." He said, "You have to. It's such a wonderful thing to do. You you just do." He said, "You don't need to be the, the the funniest person who performs. You just get up and you do it. It'll be so good for you." And I thought, "Oh my gosh, that wasn't as scary as I thought it'd be just saying it." And and now off the back of that. Conversation. My my Melbourne show this year is at Hamer Hall as part of the Comedy Festival. Now it's not a bloke walking around the microphone doing jokes the whole time. It's still me doing my thing. But it's only happened because I thought, no, nah, I'm not going to be scared of failure. And and do you know what? Like there's a big chance I will fail because a lot of people might come along going, I haven't laughed every second of the whole show. Like comedians are meant to make you laugh. There's no jokes in this. This is just like awkward stories. But I don't know. I'm going to have a go at it, and I will learn something. For the process, that's for sure.
0: That's part of my book, really thinking outside the square and asking if you, because so many have the fear of failure. So I always ask, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? So when I read that, I just love that. And it's so exciting. And obviously with your show, it's still on my dream to see you perform live. So I have now, when you have new shows out, I'm going to go and see it in Sydney, which I'm super excited about. So I can't wait to see you live. And I promise I'll laugh because I laugh when you read from the book and um, you are so naturally amazing so i have no doubt that you'll succeed and the one thing that i learned in starting with a small business growing into a bigger business was that when you do mistakes in a smaller scale even though it doesn't make you feel any better but at least it's not out there as much versus when you grow a business and it's global then you know having those mistakes in the early days just makes it more manageable when you grow. So there's some real good things in having some failures and learnings and also sometimes takes us to completely different direction, which is could also be really positive. So silver linings in it all.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: All right, let's talk a couple more things, just social media. Love that session and something that I think most of us, I actually do ask people to write down things that they want to stop doing and a lot of us, me included, want to spend less time on social media. So let's talk about that quickly.
1: Yeah, okay. So I interviewed Johan Hari, who's just written the book. You should totally get him on your podcast. He's wonderful. He's written a book called Stolen Focus. Mm. And he's talking about the fact that we as human beings have really lost the ability to concentrate and focus on anything for any given amount of time. And when I saw the title of that book, I felt emotional because the amount of times recently I've gone upstairs to get something and I get upstairs and go, what did I, what did I come up here for? I, actually can't what I, I can't remember what I came up here for. And I go back down and I say to Penny, what, what was I after? I said, are you serious? You said you're going upstairs to get your jacket. And I went, oh my God. I actually said to her once, I said, I think I need to go and get my brain. Ch- I'm scared of that, like early onset dementia or something not right. But as soon as I saw the title, Style and Focus, I went, oh boy, I think it's my phone's fault. I do think it's my phone's fault. My phone has taught me to concentrate on tasks for 20 seconds at a time. You know, We watch little videos that last for 20 seconds, then we want the next video, then the next video, and then we want the next thing. And we are doing so many things at once. We're checking emails, we're checking Facebook, we're working, we're writing something, and then we chat to someone and everything oh hang on God. what was i writing again oh no that's right oh hang on there's that facebook message we're just doing so much and our brains are just being absolutely smashed with information of distraction and and so for me one of the biggest ones was social media facebook and instagram were destroying me and i mean destroying me like they were destroying the things that i liked about myself like i loved that i used to notice all the good stuff around me. you know birds singing and, and nice weather and people and strangers and i wasn't doing those things anymore because i was just staring at a screen every second i felt bored i wasn't doing something i'd get my phone out listen to a podcast listen to music which is all fine in moderation like anything but it was just i had to have my phone with me doing everything all the time so i spoke to quite a few people about this very topic and spoke to a couple of researchers on how we stop because in my first book i wrote strategies to break your addiction to social media and they worked for me but when a pandemic happened that didn't work anymore you know it was it was Stopping notifications, it was rearranging your home screen, deleting Facebook, it was leaving your phone at home from time to time, all things which I'm still very, very in favor of, and people should definitely do them. But that didn't stop the addiction. The addiction came back during the lockdown. So the main thing that I I heard from the experts was we need to re engage with flow, and flow is the activity that you do. And everyone's got an activity that is, is their flow. And it is the activity that you do that you're really good at. And a lot of people find it quite challenging, but for whatever reason, for you, you just seem to really find it not as hard. It's still challenging, but not as hard for you. It's the activity that when you're doing it, you're so immersed in it that you could be doing it for an hour and someone will say, how long have you been doing this for? And you'd say, oh, I don't know, about 10 minutes. Like You just don't have any concept of time. And you don't think when you're doing it. You're so immersed in it that if someone stopped you and said, hey, what are you thinking about right now? You'd say, oh, I'm actually not thinking. This is just happening, this activity. So I think we're much better at kids. I think kids get into flow a lot easier than we do as adults. But uh, I think we feel a bit guilty about our flow activities because maybe it's playing tennis and you think, I don't have time to play tennis this weekend. The kids are got to get here. I've got to get lunch ready for the week. I, gotta, I don't have time for tennis. So we kind of sacrifice our flow. For me, it used to be playing cricket, then I stopped playing cricket and I noticed I wasn't in flow at all and running very much opposite now. But I mentioned it before, occasionally when I'm doing my big shows and it happens maybe, I don't know, I, this year I'm doing 28 shows for the year on the national and New Zealand tour I really feel like it happens maybe three or four times to the year. But when it happens, it's the most incredible feeling. Last time I did a show in Melbourne, this is going to sound very weird to people, but this is what flow does to you. And you might This might be familiar in some point in your life. I had the last show I did in Melbourne, Convention Centre, with 3,000 people, five minutes in, I just felt this extreme amount of calm come over me and I thought, "Ah, oh, I got this. And I literally felt like I was walking off stage I literally felt like I was watching myself from side to stage and I didn't have to think. It just happened. I did this talk for two hours to so 3,000 people without thought. It just flowed. So, and I, it was basketballers call it being unconscious. Sports people call it being in the zone. Jazz musicians call it being in the pocket. I don't know why, but I do have to look that up. But it's where the activity you love doing just happens without effort or thought. I mean, some people argue it's one of the greatest antidotes to mental ill health is to spend time in flow. Because when you're in flow, certain parts of your brain shut off. And one of the parts that shut off is the part that is critical self-talk. You know, that voice in your head that gives you self-doubt and your insecurities and it goes, it switches off. It actually turns off when you're in the activity and you have full confidence and it's just the most beautiful feeling. Yeah,
0: I love it. I love it. I so relate to that. And I often feel in the flow when I'm out in nature, but um, I really feel sad for some of the later generations with phones in their hands all the time because they don't actually have the opportunity to sometimes even get to that you know you need now see kids in the pram having you know the phone when you're out walking well kids should be really looking at all the birds and things when they're in the pram versus looking at the screen so it's one that I think we'll hear a lot about in the next few years and hopefully um, get back to a bit of normal consumption because it's quite sad and I actually have kids Myself that are suffering with that, Um they're a little bit older than Pram, but it's one thing that it really often I get really frustrated when I feel like. It's good to be bored. It's good to kind of work out what you're going to do next versus just go to that phone. And I'm guilty of it as well. You know, I was going to look up something just before we went on this call, and then I found myself on Instagram, and I'm like, I can't believe this. <laughs> it's just, it's just so addicted, and we're so uh, without um, thinking. So I'm glad you brought that up in the book, and most of us would love to deal with that a bit better.
1: Yeah, totally. I strongly recommend if you want to learn more about this, it's reading Stolen Focus by Johann Hari as well. It's so good because it also he said, I need to be really clear with this, that I'm not saying that we need to make individual changes ourselves. He said, it's a bit like dealing with the pollution problem by putting on an oxygen mask. He said, I'm all for wearing oxygen masks, you know, to help yourself. But there's a much bigger problem at play here, and it's the pollution. And so we need to confront and stand up to technology companies and say, we don't want this. We do not want to live like this.
0: Yeah, I agree. So obviously you shared Stolen Focus. Is there any other books that you recommend?
1: Stolen Focus is the only, like, self-help kind of book i've read recently because in writing my own book i found myself being i get very insecure reading other people's books self-help books I'm like oh god they're so much better than mine why am i even writing this that have arguments that might be counter to what i'm saying i go oh god what am i doing and so i actually stopped reading my favorite genre which is the self-help genre i just love it so much and i stopped reading them and and i started reading other types of books which i've never really done before so the books i'm reading are so specific to my interest i don't think anyone would be interested i read this wonderful book fiction book called The Rules of Backyard Cricket. I read it twice. I absolutely loved it. It was just brilliant. I'm currently reading Kate Langbrook's book mm-hmm. called Chow Bella, and it's incredibly vulnerable, heartbreakingly honest and raw, but it just be- she's just a beautiful writer. And I didn't know that about her, but she writes beautifully. So Kate Langbrook's book I'd highly recommend. The other book I'm reading at the moment is The Fastest Men Alive, which is the story of everyone who's won a gold medal in the 100-meter sprint since uh, 1904 Olympics, which is a zero interest to most people. But that's the book I'm reading at the moment.
0: Thank you so much. I just want to finish on a high and a bit of a laugh because this made me laugh a lot on your expense <laughs> when you walked out on stage and realized you had taken a sleeping tablet instead oh. of something. I was so impressed that you actually managed to do it because I, I feel when I go out on stage, I feel like I'm scattered as it is. So if I had a sleeping tablet in my body, I'm
1: not sure how I could manage that. The, the memory just makes me so anxious. Of just As I went to take the tub, people were going, how did that happen? But I, I thought it was an anti-inflammatory because my knees get really, well, my left knee has got tendonopathy, It gets so sore when I'm standing on stage. And so I grabbed this tablet. The guy goes, you're on in two minutes. And I went, you yeah, know, Tom, thank you. And I reached into my bag and I grabbed this tablet to take it so it could get me through. And as I swallowed it, it was rough, not smooth. The anti-inflammatories that I take are smooth. And the sleeping tablet that I take only after I do big shows, because I can't sleep after them, I'm so wide. I take it when I get back to the hotel. So that's twenty-five times a year. I never take them. So when I do, they really work. And I got it out of the bag and I, as it went down my throat, I went, oh my God, that was the sleeping tablet. And I Tried to make myself throw up, and the guy came back in. He's like, "Are you okay? You don't you don't be that nervous." I'm like, "No, no, you don't understand." <laughs> and I got on stage, and there's actually I found a photo. I'll have to dig it up, but I found a photo somewhere as it was kicking in. My joints just went to like liquid. There's like my I just felt this warm oil like flowing through my body, and I went, "Oh boy, I'm in trouble here. I'm gonna fall asleep in front of three thousand people." <laughs> I managed to kind of push through it, and someone got me a Coke or a Pepsi, and I sculled it. And then I had really, I couldn't stop burping for the next five minutes. I'd sculled a busy <laughs> drink. And but amazingly, like on the topic of vulnerability and all that kind of stuff, the audience was so in. I told them everything, and they were so invested in it, like, oh my God, come on, you can do this. Get through it.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much, first, for writing a book that I think everyone needs to read now so I'll obviously link that in the in the show notes and we're reading it in my book club at the moment and also thank you so much I know how busy you are and I felt um, you know I do have the saying don't say no say how and I really wanted to get you on here because I think it's a message that so many people need right now so I was being persistent but I did feel a bit bad because I know how much work you've got on so thank you so very much.
1: Yeah, we've just totally front-ended my year with podcasts and talks and the tour and it's all happening at the moment. And I'm also a stay-at-home dad Thursdays and Fridays, so I'm doing everything in three days. And and the fact it took a while, it wasn't a reflection on how much I wanted to do it. It was purely just how much is going through my brain. So you being persistent has made this happen. I've loved this conversation so much. I've been a big fan of yours for a long time and I have so much respect for what you've done. Yeah, it's such a huge thrill to do this podcast with you. So thank you so much.
0: Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Pleasure, Christina. Thank you.
0: Oh my gosh, I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. I have listened to the book and read the book a few times now, done the exercises, and we are now reading it in my personal growth slash book club, and I just can't wait to get into that as well. But just so much wisdom and so many great things that we can do to deal with all that. So I hope you enjoyed it. And if you are not in the Facebook group, which is a free Facebook group as part of the podcast, which is called the Dream Life Podcast Facebook group by Christina Carlson, please join and let me know what you got out of it. I will be back next week and until then I hope you all do well considering all the things that are happening in the world and um, if you got some time make sure you take some time to dream big as well. I'll see you next week.